I am the summit co-chair for Shared Prosperity. I am also the former Deputy Prime Minister of Canada and a senior advisor at the law firm of Bennett Jones LLP. First, let me give a big thank you to our four idea pitchers this morning. The pitches identify challenges, most of which pre-existed COVID-19, but all of which have been magnified by COVID-19. Pre-existing structural barriers to inclusive and equitable participation in global economies have been starkly revealed. One thing is clear. Those who were marginalized and struggling before COVID-19 are further negatively impacted because of COVID-19. But does this global pandemic provide us with the opportunity to build back better? And I realize not everybody out there uh, accepts that phrase, but it is one that I will use this morning. One senses momentum for change a desire to identify the gaps in our social programs, the barriers to access to education that prepares one for the digital automated economy of the future, and the limitations of markets to create and share prosperity in an inclusive and equitable way. Governments have announced trillions of dollars in relief, but how do we translate that into a shared recovery? one that promotes economic growth, sustainability, and inclusion. And to do any of that efficiently and effectively, we need better information, better data collection, which will provide the evidence that governments, the private sector, and civil society need to choose the best tools by which to build back better. With that, I am pleased to introduce my fellow panelists. Farah Mohammed is Senior Vice President, Toronto Region Board of Trade. She is the former CEO of the Malala Foundation and founder of the Girls G20, a global organization to cultivate female leaders. Jim Chalmers is the MP for Rankin in the Australian Labour Party and is the shadow treasurer in the official opposition. And Jim, as I mentioned, I love the way you introduce yourself sometimes, a scrapper, a scrapper from Logan City. Miguel Metas is a member of parliament in the Socialist Party Parliamentary Group for the Lisbon area. And Miguel, I believe the youngest member of parliament to ever be elected. And you are a former economic advisor to Prime Minister Antonio Costa. Welcome to you all. Good morning. Now, we have one small housekeeping matter before we get into this. We will be taking questions toward the last 15 minutes of our panel. To ask questions, please go to Slido, S-L-I-D-O, Slido.com and use the hashtag Recovery Summit to be taken to our dedicated Q&A page. So let's get started, everyone. <clears throat> uh, the same question for each one of you right now. As you all know, uh, when we're in the midst of a crisis or a traumatic event, human nature is such that we say we are going to learn lessons, we're going to take those lessons seriously, and we are going to make things better. Um, 
I think it's fair to say all four of us either have been elected or have worked in government over an extensive period of time. I think we have all seen that, in fact, that desire to build back better doesn't always come to fruition. Do you think coming out of COVID-19, this global pandemic, do you think that we actually will take the opportunity to make fundamental transformative change? And if you do, why? And why don't I start with you, Miguel? Sure. Um, first of all, thank you so much uh, to Canada 2020 and Global Progress for putting this together. And thanks a lot for the invitation. It's a real honor to be here with such a distinguished panel uh, of speakers and uh, many people whose work I admire. I mean, I think this time really is different. I mean, we, we say this every single time when there's a crisis, but really, if we look at this crisis, this time is different. First of all, because of the huge debt and intensity of this crisis. I mean, we just didn't have the sheer scale of job losses the previous time we had a crisis, namely in 2008. And also it's different in the in the kind of um, job losses we have. I mean, in the previous crisis, as, uh, as some of the pictures just said, we had more men losing their jobs than women. Nowadays, it's a bit different. In this crisis, more women are losing their jobs than men. And I think, we also have a different uh, a difference in this crisis in the sense that the financial sector has not been fundamentally affected. Mm -hmm. And in this sense, we still have a mechanism through which we can work, both in terms of funding government, but also in terms of funding businesses to help us recover. And so the meaning of this is that we, we, we both have uh, uh, different commitments to providing uh, a bigger scale of solutions, but we also have more instruments at our disposal than we have before. And we've seen it very clearly, the United States with giving those uh, checks to people, to everybody, um, the huge amounts of furlough schemes across across Europe, among a number of other policy instruments, which have been truly groundbreaking. The last sense in which uh, this time is different is that uh, this crisis, the health crisis, which then sparked the economic and social crisis, happened at the same time as two other crises, which really um, require a response and which I think require a meaningful and, and lasting response, which is the climate crisis, very clearly. I mean, in 2008, we're not seeing the kind of uh, forest fires we are seeing today, the kind of natural disasters we're seeing today, and which huge impacts also on, on, the, on the actual value of financial and, and real economy assets. And also a crisis in democracy, because populists are emerging, far-right populists are emerging all over the place, and really we need to provide answers now in the sense that in 2008, we didn't feel this urgency because the establishment and the system and, and democracy itself was not in question. Now, if we fail, perhaps there might be a question about whether this is the right political system for us. I mean, I think we need to marshal new kinds of solutions. I'm sure we'll go into depth in, into all of those. Mm -hmm. uh, I just think that um, to do that, we need to start considering the politics of how we implement sustainable solutions, increasing the bargaining power of workers, Increasing also um, the, the laws, making the laws a bit more stable and more implementable. And lastly, to change the narrative, to change the Overton's window um, by looking at headline indicators. Heather Bush in her pitch just a few minutes ago was talking about how we need to look at different indicators of GDP, right. well-being GDP. I mean, perhaps we also need to look at other, other indicators as to the deficit, public deficit. Just a few ideas to shift the balance. Okay, thank you, Miguel. Farah. 
Yeah, so I think Miguel has uh, highlighted a lot of the different issues. I would say it can change if we do a couple of things. So first of all, we have to uh, really admit that we were thrown off our game. Like we have never been thrown off our game and not just one person, everybody. It's not, it's not left government or business or individuals uh, immune to anything. So one, we've been thrown off our game. Two, we've been exposed to our blind spots, right? We didn't understand just how blind spot we were in terms of home care, uh, nursing care. Uh, the third thing I would say is if we want this to be sustainable, if we really want to see some change, we have to admit that what we have doesn't work for everyone. So I'll give you a very clear example. Um, we in Canada did the right thing and we put this thing called a COVID alert so that everyone could put it on their, their iPhone or whatever device they, they happen to have. That was just a plug for Apple. I didn't mean to do that. But um, so whatever advice you have. But you have to understand that vulnerable populations don't necessarily use those devices. So how are they supposed to have the same access that everyone else is? So the issue of access has really been mm-hmm. um, brought to bear. You know, we, we didn't want to leave our houses, but we wanted people that we depend on to leave their houses. So we could go if we wanted to deliver, have our groceries delivered. Well, somebody's packing those groceries. Somebody's shopping for that stuff. So I think we have to really understand that you know, on top of what Miguel has said, we do need political, social, economic changes, number one. We need to recognize our blind spots and really drill down on the solutions. So if we know that healthcare, and uh, but incidentally, healthcare is not, you know, when I worked in government and I used to work with Anne and we have, uh, you know, scars to tell around SARS. Um, yes. Did we learn anything from SARS? I, I think we did. I think we did learn things, you know, changes were made. But when I come back to, can this be sustainable? If we recognize our blind spots and we drill down on the solutions, then I think things can change. If we uh, do, we only think about the short game and we don't think about the long term, I don't think anything will change. And I think that's the difference. The last thing I'll say is what gives me hope um, is that I've never seen this level of collaboration between government before. Here in Canada, we have the um, federal government working very closely with the provincial government, working very closely with the municipal government. They may not agree on everything, but they've been present. They've been relatively clear. They've been collaborative. And I think that is what gives me hope, is that um, that combined with our ability to be quick. I mean, we've, we've accelerated the pace here by 10 or 15 years. And we'll get into some of the things that have been accelerated, but I've never seen this kind of collaboration with this kind of speed. And that's, I think, what gives me hope, both in terms of government, what business has done, and what individuals think they're capable of doing in a time of incredible, incredible um, unknown and, and a sense of real uncomfortableness. No one knows when this will end. Thank you. Jim, your perspective on this. Yeah, thanks very much, Anne and uh, Miguel and Farah as well for, for the opportunity to join you on this, uh, on this panel. Uh, I think there is a certain nostalgic pull that our political opponents will rely on uh, to pretend that the best that we can hope for is some kind of return to uh, how things were in the pre-COVID economy. And the reason why I have some confidence that we uh, can build back better, as you said in your question, is because the alternative for uh, you know, the great mass of, of working people in, around the world uh, is too horrible to, to contemplate. Uh, I think it is equally true, uh, as you intimated um, in your introduction before, is that we haven't been uh, perfect at learning the lessons of the past. Uh, you know, the GFC exposed deep flaws in neoliberalism. 
this um, crisis is exposing deep flaws in right-wing populism. Both of those crises exposed uh, ineffective government, and yet the foundations of the political contest are more or less uh, undisturbed. Uh, and with some exceptions, including our hosts, of course, those political conditions have not been uh, very kind to us. So I think we do need to recognise that. Um, I think that the point that you made and others have made about uh, the acceleration of some of the things that worried us most in the economy is a really important uh, starting point here. Uh, Miguel was right, I think, to point to the fact that we're dealing with a different order of magnitude and I think mm -hmm. a different order of multitude as well. The fact that this crisis is not just impacting the most vulnerable, as important as that is, but also the kind of the middle of our societies as well means that this is a, a different crisis than before the stakes are uh, that much uh, higher. Uh, and all of the for all of the talk of kind of unprecedented times, we need to recognise that the conditions in the economies of the developed world in particular before this crisis uh, are, are the things which will weigh heaviest on our capacity uh, to grow uh, out of it. Uh, I also think we need to avoid the trap uh, of considering everything that's being done now, including welcome support by governments of all persuasions in the economy. Uh, we need to avoid seeing that just as short-term triage. If we do that, We'll squander the opportunity to build back better. We'll squander the opportunity to find bigger answers to bigger questions. And the risk of that approach is that all we do is we spend hundreds of billions of dollars, if not trillions of dollars in each of our countries, just paying for a return uh, to, to the inertia uh, of the past. Mm. Uh, in Australia, the Australian Prime Minister has a term for this, which is called snapback. And he talks about snapping back to how mm. things were before most of us had even heard of coronavirus. Uh, that is a very damaging sentiment in my view. In different countries, we call it different things. But I think it's really clear that if we snap back to whether it's neoliberalism, protectionism, tribalism, nativism or austerity, uh, that would be a recipe for a deeper downturn, longer unemployment queues, a slower recovery, more damage to budget, more social dislocations, uh, more economic dislocation and also will mean that we haven't learned the lessons of this um, extraordinary crisis and we've squandered the capacity to build back better from it. So I take it from all three of you that you actually think because of, let us summarize it, the magnitude of this particular global crisis, that there will be sufficient momentum and political will to actually look at some of the structural problems that we we actually all knew existed before COVID-19. Right? Yeah, I'll that's hopeful. Like, yes. That's, that's a hopeful way to start our discussion this morning. Maybe from my position of great age, uh, maybe I am uh, just a little bit more uh, concerned about whether we're able to sustain that momentum going forward. But what are the instruments? If we want to bring about some of the kinds of change we heard in the pitches, some of the things that you're talking about, what are the instruments? What are the tools that we have to make this real for the marginalized, for the most vulnerable people in our society? So that we don't, Jim, just snap back to uh, where we were before, but we actually see some fundamental rethinking and political action 
around some of these big issues, such as be, is being called for in the four pitches. Jim, you've talked a lot about unemployment scarring. This is a big issue in COVID-19. People being detached from the workforce. Some people maybe never coming back. Others, youth, women, interruptions. How do they reconnect with the workforce? What do we need to do there to make meaningful change? Yeah, a couple of important things about that, Anne. Um, I think uh, Miguel uh, earlier on and you just now made uh, the right reference to the fact that we have to unite the political and the policy. Uh, I think there is a, uh, a tendency, a temptation uh, on the centre-left and in the progressive parties of the world uh, to think that automatically uh, our, uh, you know, our well-researched and, and uh, um, uh, you know, accepted in some parts of our society's policy solutions, we need to have some political muscle and some political heft uh, behind that. Uh, we also need to recognise that, uh, you know, as I said before, some of the contours of that political contest have not suited us, uh, whether it's kind of neoliberalism versus permanent big state socialism, whether it's right-wing populism versus left-wing populism, whether it's failures of leadership versus a kind of a, a bloodless, soulless, technocratic status quo centrism. None of those things have delivered the kind of real and meaningful change that we want to see in our economies and in our societies and so we need to unite the political and the policy in political we need to be better at being focused on incomes and work and aspiration and the future uh, we need to recognize that the coming electoral contests won't just be a referendum on what's been before but probably more uh, likely a, a referendum on on what the future looks like and what story we can tell there and also our capacity to to show people that the riskier course of action here is to actually go back to all of the job insecurity and financial insecurity and precarious work uh, that defined our economies um, before the crisis. Uh, in policy terms, uh, we need to think about things obviously cleaner and cheaper. Energy is a big part of it. Training for technology is a big part of it. The whole co-investment agenda in new sources of growth, but also to leverage traditional sources of growth is a big part of it. Obviously, we need to get better. Many of our countries need to get better at commercialising our ideas, turning our ideas into jobs. And then perhaps most impactfully in terms of marginalised groups and the hardest hit communities in our countries, we need to get better at the place-based approaches, those direct jobs, uh, jobs programs in specific areas which are hardest hit. Because to, to go to, the, to the, you know, the main thing that I think we need to care about the most the thing that keeps us awake at night uh, is the idea that this uh, spike in unemployment that we're all seeing will turn into something which becomes long-term unemployment, labour market scarring, where we see that disadvantage concentrate and cascade through the generations. I think that's the main thing that we need to avoid uh, at almost any cost. That the, that's the thing which will cruel uh, not just our economies but our communities potentially for the rest of our lives. And so that's the thing we need to focus on most. I think that's a powerful political message as well as a powerful political challenge that we need to turn our minds to, a policy challenge that we need to turn our minds to. So far, when you think about what Jim has said in terms of uh, unemployment scarring, intergenerational challenges, obviously different tools, different policy approaches for probably different targeted groups. Women, for example, mm -hmm. Miguel has mentioned you have been disproportionately impacted in COVID. What do you see as some of the 
public policy and some of the instruments or tools that uh, government needs to take a look at, needs to change, think about for women. And I know also you've worked a great deal with youth around the world. Mm -hmm. Youth disproportionately impacted as well during COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but let's uh, focus on women right now. Sure. Uh, you know, some of the impacts we're seeing are, are pretty devastating, mm -hmm. uh, especially for single moms at home. Where do you think we need to go in terms, and of course that was a problem before COVID. Yeah. So where do we yeah. need to go to try and fix some of this? So I think, first of all, we have to really um, call out some of the assumptions that we've made, right? So, Miguel, you said something that was really interesting is in this particular crisis, women are more affected than men. The reason for that is that more women have gotten further ahead and they're being paid more. So they're being let go faster. Uh, in previous crises, men were the larger uh, earners. And so to, uh, you know, create this um, ability to save some money, men were let go. So I think we have to understand why that dynamic is actually happening, number one. Number two, you know, and I, you know, I'm one who believes that the policy change has to go with a practical solution. So here, we've been talking about childcare for I don't know how long. Right. I, I just don't even understand. I can't even tell you how long we've been talking about childcare, but we know that child- As long as I've been alive, probably. Yeah, we know, exactly. Like we know, so I'm not even going to talk about how long that's been, Anne, because I refuse <laughs> to make age jokes. Um, uh, but no, look, we, we, we know that childcare is an issue and we continue to talk about it and we have a Band-Aid solution every single time we talk about it. We've never really said structurally, here's what we need to do. And we've never backed that up with the kind of money and uh, partnerships between business and government that we need. So that needs to be a structural, political policy, and then a pragmatic solution to one of the largest issues holding women back from going back into the workforce, number one. Number two, you know, we've seen now lots of companies would never have believed that you could work from home. And this has mm -hmm. been a tremendous, um, you know, again, an acceleration of what we probably would have gotten to maybe 10, 15, 20 years down the road. But it's allowed more women to work from home, to keep their jobs so that they're able to work from home, do their job, take care of their kids, et cetera, et cetera. The third thing I would say that is affecting, um, and I'm going to, I'm just going to pivot a little bit to youth now. So in terms of youth, um, you know, think about being a young person who's gone through four years, is now coming out, you've got your degree, you're on to the next stage of your life. And there really isn't a lot of opportunity in terms of um, further education because the experience is not going to be saying you probably don't have the money. Getting a job right now um, that fits your degree or your passion or whatever the case may be. And then you, you know, tack on to that, this sort of lost generation mentality. How are we going to keep them engaged? Um, so I think that we, we have this challenge with women. We have this challenge with young people. And somewhere in between, we need to come up with a really credible way of keeping them in the system. So childcare is one, work from home. Things like uh, broadband should be an essential service so that people get it no matter where they live. You know, North of just Toronto, you can be one kilometer outside of a major city and you don't have the same access. So we need to actually have governments either step up or, you know, I'm a big believer in partnerships between government and business. And we've got to find a way to do that and to do it quickly because we can't we don't we can't afford to slide back. And then the final uh, the final thing I'll say is um, I think it was Sasha in the in the MasterCard video that really talked about um, ensuring that we're investing in, in women entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And this is like a really big issue, no matter where you live in the world, right? So you can be in Africa and you could be really struggling, but you've got an entrepreneurial spirit. And if somebody gives you a chance to get your product to market, then you're going to do a lot better. So support for um, 
female entrepreneurs. Uh, Jim, you just said something about getting innovation to market. There's so many incredible innovative ideas, but we don't have the commercial um, policies. We don't have the um, industrial, uh, you know, uh, policies now that would help us around innovation. So what stops us is lots of people come up with great ideas. And in Canada's case, unfortunately, a lot of them leave this country because we don't have the commercial uh, landscape to really push those out. So there are a number of different things that I think we can do for women, for young people, um, really putting an emphasis on entrepreneurship, access to capital, all the same things we've been talking about for so long. But it's, you know, you sort of have to say enough talk, we need some action. And don't let the analysis, the over analysis lead us to paralysis, which is, I think, what has happened um, between crises, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to think about the time in between the crisis of what we've had and where we can go. Miguel, um, are we potentially facing uh, a lost generation of young people um, in terms, and not only because of COVID, obviously. Um, I think we may, be, may have been facing that challenge globally well before COVID, uh, but now it's simply magnified that so many young people have lost jobs. Um, it's not clear those jobs will even come back. Maybe to Farah's point that we've learned how to work differently, do business differently. Um, where will the jobs come from that that next generation of entrepreneurs and well, entrepreneurs may create their own jobs. But where where will the economic growth, where will the jobs come from so that we don't lose a dispirited generation of young people? I mean, it's a huge risk, the fact that there are so many people, so many young people who are finishing their degree or who are looking to start higher education. And the prospect is just so bleak for them to find jobs. And we need to give them the ability to keep on dreaming and to uh, continue to aspire to a better life. Um, really, this speaks to the, the issue of labor market scarring as well, because it, you can scar in the middle of your professional career, you can also scar in the beginning of your professional career. And what we know from the previous crisis is that a number of young people um, finished their ed their education and then they went to jobs for which they were overqualified and they ended up in the long term earning less money, uh, even if they then went back to their own careers and professions which they were trained to do. And so really, I think we need to make sure that while people have this interruption of demand, that we are able to fill this with some sort of occupational programs, which keep them busy, which keep them integrated into society, which keep them thinking, which keep us working on our skills and on our human capital. I think this is going to be really important as well. And it's going to also provide a, a labor for a number of huge societal challenges, which we have, uh, not only in terms of climate change and digital, but for example, also in the care economy, we have a, a very big need to address the labor needs of, of aging. And yes. so, you know, I, I think there's a huge opportunity for us to provide public interest jobs which occupy people during this period if we want to. Uh, on top of it, I mean, I, I just think we, we cannot give up on the idea of where. I mean, it's very popular these days to discuss UBI, universal basic income, yeah. and, and issues like that. But all of them come from an assumption that a huge number of people will not be working. And I think we can't give up on the idea of full employment. Because really, it's when people are in work, they can, um, you know, feel uh, accomplished, feel like they are, are working their full potential, and also that they meet other people uh, from other walks of life and other regions. Yes. And I think that's really important to make sure that our society um, doesn't really 
fall apart and people grow apart from each other. And so I, I think if we want to continue to provide jobs, we need to make sure that our society uh, continues to invest in a number of public services and infrastructure to continue to provide to businesses and to workers um, that social safety net, which isn't just NHS. It isn't just social security. It's much broader than that. It's about roads. It's about making sure that there's broadband three miles out of Toronto. Um, it's about all of these things just provided in a context for people to keep innovating, to create those jobs, and for uh, businesses to invest in those communities and to and to uh, deliver, and really, I think the, one of the big issues here is, is like Farah was saying, we can't have piecemeal reform. We need to make sure that when we do things, we do things right, and we don't do things halfway. Because uh, when things are halfway, then uh, businesses don't commit. And really, uh, we need commitment from all parts in order to keep jobs fixed and stable. And and could I just add very briefly to something yeah. Miguel just said then? Would that be okay? Yes. I, I just think Miguel's point about full employment is just really crucial. Um, and, you know, what it makes me think about is for a lot of economies around the world, um, you know, we need to think about even your Build Back Better challenge at the beginning of this conversation, but, but more broadly, the, you know, where is the growth going to come from and where is the employment going to come from? It's really important that, um, you know, there are some things that we don't want to go back to after the crisis, which defined our economies before the crisis. But that doesn't mean that each of our economies didn't have, you know, strengths that we shouldn't abandon as we try and create some of these new, um, new jobs. In my own case in Australia, and I suspect in Canada, it's probably similar. Uh, we have strengths in agriculture, we have strengths in resources, we have these sorts of strengths where innovation is important within those industries but not innovating away from those industries. And where a lot of the additional jobs will come from, they'll come from clean energy, but they'll come from the services sector, as Miguel rightly identifies. They will come from the care economy. Uh, and even when we think about place-based programs and local uh, labour market programs, we should be thinking more broadly than we've traditionally seen that which is, yes, there's a role for kind of public works and infrastructure and all of those important local projects, but also for, you know, work traditionally done by charities, also, you know, care economy roles, all of these sorts of roles, environmental restoration projects, all of these sorts of things we should be thinking about as additional to some of our traditional strengths rather than doing as our opponents like to pretend, which is that we will wipe the slate clean with um, areas that our nations have done well out of and replace it with something else. We're talking about additionality, and that's how we get on the path to full employment. You know, that's an interesting point because it, the framing of this crisis and what we want to see out of it becomes politically important, right? And how do progressives frame the situation in which we find ourselves and what we need to do to improve our societies going forward. And we see some of the framing, particularly in the United States, but in our in Canada and elsewhere, around what one would call popu the populist right, if you like. Uh, and how do we make sure that we, when I say we, uh, the progressive uh, left, let me call it that for lack of a better expression, how do we make sure we're framing 
what we want to see going forward in a way that resonates with our populations. And we don't lose that battle because we've lost that battle over and over again, historically, in different situations. Um, so I think, Jim, you were touching upon that in terms of the fact uh, that it's too easy for people to say, well, you know, your ideas are fine, but you want to throw out all the good, right? You hear that from President Trump, you hear it wherever. Uh, how, do we, how do we make sure we don't lose the framing battle, if I can call it that? Miguel? Well, I think that uh, one, of the, one of the major challenges when we, we start questioning this, this populist narrative is that we ourselves become sort of as opposed to populists, we don't want to change anything. We are defending the establishment in the system. And people are yearning for change. Mm -hmm. And so I think we need to decide not what is our kind of populism. And some people defend this sort of less populist idea. But really, what is the kind of real and radical and bold and effective change we want to do? And, and really, what, the, what is the difference between being a less populist and being a, a less change maker? And, and really, I think the issue we, we need to take issue with is that some of these people who are populist, they simplify all the, all the problems. They come with a number of uh, uncertainties. They are not pluralist. And indeed, very often, when we're not populist, when we were technocrats, maybe 15, 20 years ago, with some of the previous political projects of the progressive area, we were also not very pluralist ourselves. We were saying, you know, this is what the market yeah. says. This is what science says. This is correct. Just like the 2008 crisis, put the credibility and the authority and the legitimacy of the market into question. Really, I think this pandemic has made all citizens look for, for politicians who accept uncertainty, who accept they don't know everything, who accept that we need to discuss things and they are not the owners of what is right and what is wrong. And so I think if we adopt this um, humble, progressive approach towards building with people and, and look to building in a participative way, I think we will be able to turn some of the levers and convince people that, no, this is not progressive hubris. No, this is not far-right populism. This is not political correctness either. This is actually people who want to build change, which is meaningful, but want to build it with you. And uh, I think this will, this will charm people. Mm -hmm. And can I add to that? I, just, yes. I think you've just really hit it on the nail there, Miguel, because I think part of it is... Um, you know, we've been living in um, a time of politics of division versus inclusion, right? So part of the challenge is if you don't bring these people together to be part of the solution, everyone thinks they're left out. And that's what you've sort of seen. And, and that kind of um, disengagement from the system leads to things like populism. It leads to people sort of saying the government doesn't work for me and leads to certain types of governments being voted in because it's all about the individual versus the collective. And so I think what we need to do is sort of um, recognize that if you don't, if you, if, you, if you think you have all the solutions, first of all, you don't. No good government actually thinks they have all the solutions. And that's what we've sort of seen in this is, a, I think, a bit more of a reaching out to different stakeholders, working across party lines, understanding that it's not going to be one versus the other. In one of the videos, we we're talking about big, big business versus small business mm. and what the emphasis should be. I don't actually see it that way. I don't see it as one versus the other. I really see it as you have to stop the division part 
and you have to stop putting people in their different buckets. The buckets have changed so dramatically um, that we we don't, one of the ways we move forward is to forget about the old stuff and understand that we're living in such different times. We've leveled the playing field in so many different ways, in some ways, and in others, they become more more entrenched. And the last thing I'll say is I go back to, uh, we were having a discussion of youth and this idea of full employment. Full employment for sure. And I think that's very aspirational. And I think that's really, really important. But more important, I think, is full, fully engaged in your community. So you may not be employed in your community, but you have to have some sort of connection. Or you see what we saw when we were seeing sort of the uprisings in the Middle East where youth didn't have anything to do. Right. And so when you feel lost, you you pull back from that which should be pulling you in. So I think there are a bunch of different layers in terms of how do you get rid of this populist idea? You have to really um, stop the division conversation of this is good for this person or this is good. I come back to the issue of shared prosperity. Mm-hmm. How do you make sure that every single person sees that the change is a good thing for them or it's a good thing for their community and appeal mm-hmm. to that kind of um kind of that kind of behavior. And then finally, I think we're in such a different place in terms of this idea of vulnerability. I don't care who you talk to. You could be really, 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 I mean, it's different along, but everyone's been affected. So you could be ultra, you know, really, really, really wealthy, or you could be very, very, very poor. And everybody has been affected. Nobody can say they have not been affected in some way through this crisis. Mm-hmm. It's, it's impossible. Find me one person who can say that. It's not possible. No, I think that's right. Right. Um, the, it's interesting when you look at the four pitches, there are obviously different starting points, different challenges, but what they all reflect is a mix of tools that they are putting forward or asking for in a sense to deal with whatever particular challenge they are focused on. Um, is it... There, in this country, Canada, but I think in other countries as well, fair bit of discussion around what we call a guaranteed annual income, but uh, others around the world call UBI, universal basic income. Um, you see um, uh, Niels Gilman talking about universal basic capital or credit, which I have to confess I didn't know a lot about until I watched his video and then I started to do a little research. Um, in this country, uh, there is, I would say, some momentum towards a universal basic income. You see Matthew Mendelssohn, however, saying, don't go there. Don't create a big new program where actually the political buy-in may be very hard to get. We don't have the evidence yet to figure out what works and what doesn't in relation to how you structure a universal basic income. Um, let's work with the programs we have, like our child care benefit, like our health care system, and let's identify the gaps and fix those. Uh, where do you come from? Uh, in a way, I'm beginning to think something like a UBI or what we call guaranteed annual income is almost too easy. It's not, and I'm not suggesting easy to implement and the cost we may not be able to afford, but in a way it's a default. Oh, okay, that sounds good. And maybe that deals with some problems. Let's just go there and say, look, shiny new thing in the window. Uh, and let's close the books. I am exaggerating, but there, 
we've we've you know we've got this shiny new program and uh let's just move on where do you guys where do all three of you come from on that i mean i maybe i'm wrong maybe a guaranteed annual income um is part of the toolbox going forward but as i say i'm beginning to think maybe it's intellectually lazy and maybe it doesn't solve a lot of our structural problems Miguel. Well, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, I think, first of all, UBC, Universal Basic Capital, or Universal Basic Credit, as um, as Nils was talking about, yeah. is different. It, it's tackling a different problem because we really do have endowment inequality or wealth inequality. And yes. we do need to give people a bit of a leg up in society in order to have that endowment, be it help them buy a house or have some sort of... Uh, easy way to save or be the baby bonds i found that i find those ideas quite interesting mm. and uh and insightful completely different you is the universal basic income story because i think when you get you might give people this floor but actually given that there is an unequal distribution of job opportunities you're going to have pockets of society which are not working as a result they are not fully integrated as far was saying mm. into society and this is just going to generate more division because the politics of who deserves to get what is going to get get boiled up again. So I, I'm actually uh, in agreement with Professor Mendelssohn's uh, ideas. And I think um, we also can't do UBI for another reason. Uh, and we can't invest, invent big programs for another reason, which is buy-in. We need to use these, these existing simple uh, policies which we have. Because if you start inventing thousands of new different transfer programs, people just won't join them mm -hmm. and so uh, i think it's absolutely right to go with the traditional tools we have um cash transfers in these public services and i i, I think it's, it's very interesting how professor mendelson put it about um non-monetary income when you provide childcare mm -hmm. to a family you are saving them hundreds of, right. of euros or dollars or whatever your currency is in childcare costs same with public transport and so I do think that's, that's really quite, quite an important tool. And his, his third uh, point was better work. And just to wrap up with this, um, because Paul was talking about being fully integrated in the community, I think you can't be fully integrated in the community if you have the kinds of precarious work that are currently existing. And then also if you have the kind of working time that currently exists as well. Some people are working 12 hours a day. There is no way for you to be able to engage in civil society to raise a family mm -hmm to keep studying if you are working all these hours. We need to begin to contain working times again. And this will also generate more jobs because if you have all these hours to work, if you split up through le less working time for each person, more people will be employed. That might be a solution for shared prosperity getting out of this crisis. Hmm. Jim, thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm not, uh, I'm not a UBI enthusiast, um, but I, I certainly understand why people are attracted to the idea. Um, I, I think that um, the key here is still uh, targeted social security. I think the key here is still, you know, a safety net of sorts, um, but that, that it needs to be set at a rate uh, which uh, where people have a genuine shot at uh, not just supporting themselves, but uh, in a way that they can, you know, look for work or, or engage in society in other ways. And I think the idea of, um, you know, some of the other benefits that we as 
you know, um, uh, you know, decent governments and economies and societies should provide. We call it the social wage in Australia, universal health care, mm-hmm. uh, free education, all the rest of it. Uh, those are crucial aspects of it too. Uh, my fear is that if you get into the too much of the U part of UBI, uh, then our capacity to pay, pay for something meaningful for the people who need it most is fairly substantially compromised. Uh, on the UBC concept, I must concede a bit like you, and uh, it piqued my interest, but it hasn't been a long-standing uh, uh, interest. I'm not an expert on it, but. Um, again, here we have a you know a system of compulsory superannuation or compulsory retirement saving, which turns people into uh, owners of, in lots of cases, substantial capital, uh, but not in the kinds of ways that was explained in the in the idea pitch. So it's something obviously that uh, I think a lot of us will look more into. Um, it's getting close to time to go to some questions, but before we do, um, I was struck also by the fact that I think implicitly or explicitly in all four pitches, there is reference to the fact that we actually don't have the right data in many cases to make the right public policy decisions. Um, I guess. Why is that? We live in this world of of digitization and automation and big data and AI and algorithms, all of which should be making us better. All of which I realize there, there are challenges with algorithms and AI and all of that. But in theory, it is all supposed to be making us uh, better informed, uh, more efficient, being able to make better both personal decisions, but also governments being able to make better public policy decisions. Somehow, so far, it does not seem that that is the case. And speaking here at home in Canada, I think uh, we have identified during COVID huge information gaps. For example, we were not collecting data in terms of the potential disproportionate impact of COVID uh, and even basic healthcare services on our uh, racial minorities in cities like Toronto. How is that possible at this point in the 21st century when we're all supposed to have instant access to good information and AI to to analyze that data in new and exciting ways. So it seems to me that without getting that part right, we're apt to make the mistakes of the past, just repeat the mistakes of the past. So how do we fix that? So, Anne, I'm going to jump in here for a second. So as part of my responsibility at uh, the Board of Trade, we are building an economic blueprint institute. And you've really nailed it. Like we, we, there are a couple of issues around data. First of all, people have to participate in giving of their information and people don't like, we, we had a battle here, I guess it was in our last, um, uh, you know, I think in the, four years ago, but whether or not we should have a regular census. I mean, that's ridiculous. Just even that conversation is crazy. Of course you should have a regular uh, census. How are you going to know who's living in your country? So you have to start from the basic premise of, you know, will people give you their data? And there's this whole issue around privacy and that's holding people back from giving of their information for us to make good decisions. At, uh, at the, um, the Economic Blueprint Institute, uh, we started to collect data on things like transportation, affordable housing. Um, and when you, when you start to connect those dots, so are people able to live close to where they work? 
because we have a lot of people who are working outside mm -hmm. and they have to come inside. So they've got transportation issues. In a time of COVID when people don't want to be in public transportation, that kind of data makes really good sense for when you're trying to build back better. Back to your original question. Mm -hmm. If you don't know where people are living, how long it takes them to get to work, whether or not they can afford to live close to work or they're living in two hours out, you can't make good decisions. And part of the challenge here is, is we don't collect data at that kind of granular level. So it's not just collection of data. It's how you're actually collecting that data and from whom and what period of time. Um, some of our stats, can, stats Canadian data is, stats Canada data is actually really dated. It's four years old and we can't make decisions for now even versus, you know, forget about 10 years from now on old data. So how do we fix it? I think we have to really um, get at this idea of privacy and how is information held that holds people back. I think we really have to start connecting the dots on the data that we have. So you're not just looking at transportation over here and you're not connecting the dots to housing or you're not connecting the dots to um, a whole bunch of other issues. I, that's That I think is the key, is re remove the what holds people back from giving data and this issue that my privacy will be compromised and then how you're actually using that data once you have it is the connectivity between those issues. I think that's a huge, huge fail. Miguel or Jim, views on that? You, sure. You're both elected officials. Obviously, data is going to be important to anything you do. Miguel, your party's in government. Jim, you're in opposition, wishing to be the government uh, soon. So, um, you know, how are you going to make your decisions if you're not collecting the right data and analyzing it in a timely way? Well, first of all, I think we need to take into account that government already has a huge amount of data itself. Uh, and most of the time it's not using the data that it has. Uh, just to give you an example, uh, in 2016, we implemented automatically giving people the social electricity tariff, which is a discounted electricity tariff in case you, have, you are from a low-income family. And suddenly we had an increase from 70,000 families making use of this tariff to 700,000. It multiplied by 10. So there were all these people who were not, were not accessing this uh, discount this social benefit just because um, they weren't going to ask for it, but because the government used its data, it managed to reach people in need much better. But really, I think the big question about data is that the way in which we are structuring data isn't helping us to get the right conclusion. And Far was touching on that on a number of ways, and I completely agree with all that you said. Um, but I think what touching on some of the issues that we we talked we saw in the in the pictures. I mean, there are three big examples of how we can use data to shift the public narrative and help us make meaningful change in a sense of this, uh, shared prosperity. Piketty and Syed, they, they came up with this idea of distributional GDP. And one of the statistics they came up with was during the past few years, there's been no growth at all for most of the lower, of the lower class, very little growth for the middle class, and huge growth for the upper class in the top 1%. If we don't take into account that how growth is distributed, we won't see if this recovery is affecting everybody. Another issue is what Heather said about well-being GDP. We've discussed this as well previously already and how sort of, you know, a number of areas beyond the money in your pocket matters and access to a number of rights. But one of the last things which I want to talk about is, um, and touch on it with data, is public finance. Because I think there's a big risk that we go back to austerity and that people begin mm -hmm. saying we need to have sound money, we need to reduce costs. Um, and one of the big mistakes which we made in Europe for the past 10 years is that when we are looking at budget deficits, we are not taking into account the spending on social services 
on the national healthcare service and we're not taking into account how much we're spending to service the debt on interest payments. And so people were saying loads of bad stuff about Italy, for example, but Italy has had a primary surplus for all these years. So if, if we don't count interest payments, they have been doing good work in terms of fiscal responsibility. But people were saying they were fiscally irresponsible. And so I, I think as we go to recover, we need to make sure that we are not counting as a negative in our fiscal uh, indicators, all spending on good stuff, all spending on public investment, on the care economy, on the national healthcare service to make sure that it responds to the pandemic. You know, I think these kind of spending should be excluded from the deficit calculation so that we don't begin a discussion on austerity that cuts into these essential areas. And that's using data to make good decisions. That's an interesting well, proposition you put forward that you would exclude that. You would exclude those expenditures, where, which are actually, for most governments, the biggest expenditures they have, right? That's yeah. Uh, Jim, thoughts? Yes, thanks, Anne. I think uh, just to pick up where Miguel left off, I think one of the big challenges really is the inability of uh, budgets in around the world to capture you know, the full benefits of, of social and other kinds of investment. I think that's a really good point. But in terms of data more broadly, uh, this is the game changer in, in public policy and in service delivery. Uh, and I think as um, Farah mentioned a moment ago, uh, it is unfortunately the conversation around it is dominated by the downside. It's dominated by suspicion. It's dominated by privacy concerns. And some of those are obviously legitimate. Uh, and in some countries, including mine, it's dominated by this sense that the government only really wants data to do things like um, chase after people who are being overpaid in the social security system or, you know, some other kind of punitive mm. um, purpose. But the reason it's the game changer is because if you just take early childhood, for example, I mean, how are we going to successfully intervene in the lives of disadvantaged communities when it comes to our young people? With all of the extraordinary payoffs, not just fiscal, but social, economic, uh, cascading through generations, how are we going to do that if we can't recognise the patterns, recognise the concentrations? So I think it's just um, you know, absolutely crucial that we get much better at measuring what really matters, not instead of GDP, unemployment, wages, growth and the like, but in addition to the New Zealanders have got a model there uh, which is worth looking at. Their wellbeing budget is a fascinating exercise. My friend Grant Robertson's done a hell of a lot of great work there, the finance minister, in, in making that something uh, which is very important to the way they make decisions there. We all should be contemplating steps like that. Uh, we, should thinking, we should be thinking about what in the data tells us about the big barriers to social mobility in particular because unless we understand those and we've got remarkable opportunities to better understand them, we won't be able to eliminate them. Good point. Um, okay, here are a couple of questions from the audience. What, and this one's kind of interesting actually, what are the key skills in public service that you would like to see so that the trap of short-term thinking and aiming for low-hanging fruit isn't the goal or becomes the reality? Interesting question, right? Uh, in terms of, well, 
<laughs> very interesting question in terms of who actually drives real change in our governments. Uh, elected officials, public servants, professional nonpartisan public servants, uh, whatever. But this person is asking, what are the key skills? And I mean, we've all talked about in our respective governments and levels of government, the renewal of our public service, uh, have our public services become uh, risk averse to such a degree in the names of transparency and accountability, which are good values too, that public servants actually, we've stripped out their not their ability, but we haven't given them the framework in which to be risk takers, as long as they have the right information, but risk takers in terms of offering innovative solutions to elected officials and quite honestly, to the larger society. What do you think? Any views on that? What are the key skills you'd like to see in the public servants who actually day in, day out, Elected officials come and go, as we all know. Public servants tend to make a career of it. I think the key there, and if you wouldn't mind me um, kicking yes. off, is is really a you know people who have the capacity to contribute to an evaluation culture. I think there's a there's a problem in so many of the democracies of the world where the announcement of a policy is seen as the kind of endpoint. Mm. Uh, it's uh, you know there's a policy development process which which ends with a, a uh, a senior uh, elected official uh, announcing a policy and, and, you know, it's in the media for a day or two. Uh, but where we fall down, I think, is the kind of evaluation process after that, measuring what works, uh, the capacity to, to um, understand and deliver, you know, long-term gains. I think that's really the, you know, when we think about institutional decay and we think about the way that uh, capacity has been eroded by um, a lot of the ways that we, um, that public services uh, spend a lot of money on, on contractors and consultants now, we've lost that capacity to think about a policy beyond the announcement. I think that's uh, one of the really noticeable things um, because, uh, and some, some countries have evaluator generals or they have evaluation units in their, in their bureaucracies. I think that's a really good development that we all should be looking at because absent that, um, then it is, you know, nobody ever really knows whether a policy that you could have been, you could have spent five minutes developing it or five years developing it. Nobody knows if it works unless we measure it, keep an eye on it, evaluate it, tweak it, and think about the long-term consequences. And maybe I'll just jump in here with it. It's not that I, I, I mean, it's a, it's a great question, but I also think that the, the question that we really need to look at is when I think about characteristics of public servants, are they making decisions for the people that they're like? Are they are they able to relate to the people that they are making the decisions for? Mm -hmm. So one thing we have not talked about in the inclusivity conversation is uh, immigrants and refugees. Right. They've been left out of this entire conversation, yeah. right? Not mentioned. I don't think they're mentioned in the videos. Yet um, for Canada, for example, for us to grow, we're going to need a significant number of immigrants, and we're also a very open population with respect mm -hmm. to refugees. Whether or not we build what they need or we give them what they need to succeed is an entirely different conversation. But right. in this conversation, public servants, are we um, recruiting? Are we keeping the type of public servants that we need to have to make decisions for the populations they're making the decisions for? Do we have young people in the public service? Do we have newcomers or immigrants, uh, refugees in the public service? 
So who's making the decisions? Who gets, who gets into the public service would be my question. Because I, th- I think we have a lot of great public servants who are smart, they're analytical, they want to take risks. You know, there are some barriers that are, prevent them from doing that. But your public service has to reflect, like we say about politicians, right? Why, why do we put the division in there? So I think there's a real challenge around, do we have public servants that reflect the people they're making decisions for? And I would argue that we don't. I don't, I, you know, tell me who's going to make up our youth policy. Yeah. I don't know that we're engaging youth and having a youth council is great, but is it enough? Are they ingrained enough in the system to make the change? And I would argue they're not. So it's not necessarily about characteristics. It's about the, comp- the composition of our public service. Miguel, any thoughts? Yes, I, I completely agree with, with both of these points, both the priority to relate, uh, which I think, diversity is, is important. Also because I think that diversity introduces a certain competitiveness to being in public service, which means that people strive to excel rather than just being, if everybody's the same, just like you, you can just sort of sit back and, mm-hmm. and let things happen. I think uh, complementing on this, I think we also need to talk about how in order to relate, public service needs to be a lot more about talking straight and communicating mm-hmm. in a, a simple and effective way to people. Also, in terms of the evaluation system, which Jim was talking about, I, I absolutely agree. Really, it, after analysis, most policies aren't followed up on. In academia, we talk a lot about sort of saying, you know, does this policy increase GDP or income mm-hmm. X percent? More than the, um, the that kind of result, I think a lot of the time we don't even consider the output. We don't even say how many people were actually trained by this professional training program. How many students were actually put through this childcare system. Because if we do look at these outputs, then most of the time we'll see that our policies are, are not working as well as they should be. And so I think fixing the accountability system is absolutely essential because that's the only way that we can shift the media economy from the announcement moment to also taking into account the final effect. And just to add a third element and to, to wrap up here for, for public service traits, planning, being prepared, I think is something which we undervalue these days and really, you know, doing the work to know what you're talking about, I think is key, not just for public servants, but also for politicians who are in a certain way in public service as well. One would hope, Miguel, that politicians are at the very core motivated by public service as opposed to power hungry as self-aggrandizement. But hey, (laughs) maybe I'm naive. Um, I have another question uh, here from the audience, and um, it's about global level collaboration. What global level collaboration is needed? The G20 is conspicuous in its absence. What would greater coordination look like? And I think this is an interesting question. Farah commented on the, the level of collaboration we have seen domestically here in Canada. Right. And I, I hope that in Portugal, Australia uh, and other countries, domestically, the levels of government have been working together to deal with the crisis. But I think the, it is fair to say that unlike the global financial crisis mm-hmm. in 0809, where the world, especially the G20, came together with a coordinated response, we don't see that here. We see the European Union working, obviously, on a recovery project. Um, you see a lack of 
global leadership from multilateral institutions like the G20, the G7, even the UN to some extent. Um, and the United States seems to be missing in action. And whether we like it or not, um, the United States generally has to play an important role in terms of motivating global action, either because of their huge resources, intellectual or human, financial, just their dominance in terms of, of shaping world events, seems to be missing in action. So the question is about, or the question makes the point that this person believes that level of global cooperation is missing. And how does that help us create a world, if we had that, how does that help create a world where we have shared prosperity? Anybody want to take a kick at that? I'm happy to, Anne, if you'd like. Um, okay. Look, I, I think that that is, um, you know, among the most conspicuous developments of this crisis is the, the almost total uh, lack of um, uh, involvement by the big multilateral institutions that we relied on during the GFC. Many of us were working in various capacities during that period and saw the, the remarkable uh, work done by the G20 in particular, I think, during the, the global financial crisis has been more or less absent this time around. And I think you're spot on. I don't think it's just the Americans. I think the two biggest players have been, um, you know, not in the cart for um, uh, making those problem-solving institutions a, a key part of, of dealing with the crisis. And so in their absence and with that void, uh, I think there have been some promising developments in terms of cooperation between some of the middle powers and the middle-sized democracies and economies. It's not as conspicuous as a you know, as a big G20 meeting in Scotland or something like that, or in Washington, D.C., uh, like we saw a little over a decade ago, but it is happening. We could think of it as the kind of coalition of the sensible in lots of ways, uh, and there will be cooperation. I think where that's going to really matter uh, is because in lots of the developing world, uh, this, uh, this virus is only really just gathering steam. And so for a lot of developed countries, including some of those middle-sized democracies and economies who, um, you know, may be among the earliest to get a handle on the outbreak. I think a lot of those developing world countries will be relying heavily on us mm -hmm. uh, for some of that cooperation because, I mean, we have our own problems in the developed uh, economies of the world, but they are nothing compared to uh, what we might anticipate in in uh, in the developing world, and that's where cooperation is going to be incredibly crucial. Farah, you've worked. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's an interesting uh, question, right? Because it's such a global problem, mm. um, and the absence of you know global um, cooperation. I'm not sure that I believe that there's not. I mean, we we haven't seen it because no one's traveling. You don't see a you know. Think about when we think about leaders getting together. They're all sitting around the table. There's conversations. There's lots of media attention. There's and so we haven't seen it. I'm not sure I agree that there hasn't there hasn't been the level that we'd like to see because people have had to have their heads down and dealing with their own domestic problems. But I'm not sure that I agree there hasn't been. Uh, has it been um, as um, acute or as um, focused as we would have had because we had a financial crisis and everyone understood what that looked like? I think a lot of it is the unknown. 
right? So in Africa, in some cases, some of those communities, because they had to deal with things like the spread of AIDS or polio or something like that, they have very robust healthcare systems on the ground. They know how to do, do things public health-wise in their communities. Um, we could actually learn from them. So while I understand, Jim, and I completely agree that we're going to have to share what we know, we're also going to have to pay attention to what they're doing mm -hmm. as well and learn from them. Um, again, I, I think part of it is we haven't seen the global cooperation. And I don't, I'm not challenging. I don't think we've had the global um, cooperation we'd want to see. And yeah, I'm, I am going to squarely blame uh, actors like the US. Uh, you know, quite the opposite is what they've been doing, right? Is they, you know, because of the leadership they have there, they've been sort of circling themselves. And, and uh, you know, I think that is problematic. If you have leaders who are going to do that at that level, it's going to be very, very hard for people to think that their collaboration at the global level will make an impact. And I think that's part of the issue is, are we set up for success in that regard? No, I don't think so. But are organizations like the WHO sharing information between governments? Yes. Uh, we haven't seen the OECD. We haven't seen the World Bank. We haven't seen the G7. We haven't seen the G20. But are those the actors that really we need uh, to have at the table? Or is it the, is it the WHO who should be sharing that information across? I know during SARS, Anne, yes. if we had had the warning signs from the WHO, you know, you know, again, it's timing. It's timing and it's information sharing. And that stuff happens without leaders sitting around a table. True. Sometimes it's more effective. I hate to say it, but sometimes yeah. it's faster and more effective. I'm not Miguel? making any fans there, I'm sure. But <laughs> Miguel, any thoughts? I, I think that we're absolutely correct in placing this, um, this discussion on global cooperation because we can't have shared prosperity only within our bubble of Western advanced economies, and we need to look at shared prosperity in a wider sense. I think there's a big question of how, with the reorganization of the world economy, with the shortening of global value chains, how will emerging and developing economies resist, and how will uh, the livelihoods of those people uh, face, how will they be in the future? But also, I think, even when we're discussing the challenges of our own Western advanced economies, we also need to look at the issues ourselves and, and cooperate ourselves. I mean, in Europe, we've managed to make this groundbreaking efforts, and now we're the European Union is going to issue debt for the first time ever. I mean, we need to overcome often, in terms of global cooperation, issues of trust. Mm -hmm. I think um, we can't build trust unless we talk to each other. I mean, part of this recovery summit is important. is also that it puts progressive people in touch with each other and talking. Right. And uh, so I think these networks of policymakers, of people in politics, of people in academia talking to each other, figuring out solutions, figuring out why they don't trust the other one to implement those other kinds of solutions can really help to build solutions and to implement them on a global scale, but also on a, la on a national scale as well. And that's another form of cooperation. Yeah. Right. I think very thoughtful responses on that question from all three of you. Now, I am getting word from the puppet masters behind the scenes that it is time to wrap up. Uh, but before we go there, uh, what I would like from each of you is a final comment in terms of uh, either, um, uh, I think, uh, likelihood of success, either in your own countries or globally in terms of transformative change, shared prosperity, a barrier you see to that, uh, anything that you've taken both from the pitches and from our conversation this morning with which you'd like to conclude. 
and let us hope, but it doesn't have to be on a positive note. Okay, who shall I start with? Um, Jim, why don't I start with you? Uh, well, thanks very much again, uh, Anne and uh, Ferrara and Miguel, for, for the opportunity to have a chat with you. I, I found it, um, uh, you know, a terrific opportunity. Um, look, I, I think there is cause for uh, optimism where um, we already govern um, to, you know, uh, uh, not miss this opportunity which is before us, uh, to build back better, as you said, to deal with uh, labour market scarring to try and prevent that lost generation mm -hmm. uh, that we were speaking about a moment ago. Um, I think for those of us, uh, you know, in opposition around the world, uh, the politics are difficult in the near term uh, mm -hmm. as people kind of rally around governments and we all want mm -hmm. governments to succeed because that means uh, more people surviving the virus and, and fewer people uh, losing their jobs. But So I think the politics are unclear. The I'm not sure if I'd be optimistic or pessimistic on that front yet, but certainly where we already hold the reins uh, of uh, of power, I think that there is lots of uh, cause for us to be confident uh, that we can learn the lessons, that we can do better than go back to how our economies were before. Thank you, Jim. Farah. Yeah, I mean, in the interest of, of just um, making sure the puppet masters don't cut us off and move on to the next thing, I <laughs> um, okay. I guess I would say I'm, I'm very, I'm, look, I'm, I'm optimistic because I don't have any other way about me. But mm -hmm. that optimism really belongs, uh, I think, in three different sort of places. I want us to be aspirational. Mm -hmm. And I think we are um, in the place where we can be. I want us to be practical because we have to be. And that gives me optimism because I do think that there are people who are seeing practical solutions and have the willingness to rinse and repeat where it makes sense. And then I think we will be um, very successful if we can build in this idea of accountability. And accountable, and I'll come back to exactly where we started, which is accountable to whom? Accountable to everyone, so that we don't leave people out. And that, you know, you know my background, Anne, but you know, yeah. my, I would define myself as a champion of, of women first, obviously, of young people, and then perhaps because I was a refugee to this country, looking at newcomers. And I really believe this is a chance for us to level set in some ways that we've never um, mm -hmm. been inspired to do so because we've never seen this level of uh, difference between. We've, it's just never been felt like it's been felt now. So I'm, I'm optimistic. I, I, I kind of have to be uh, to be able to do the work that I, I want to do in the world as well. Right. Miguel. Yeah, I completely agree that we can be optimistic. I mean, there's that famous quote about the optimism of the will and the pessimism of the intellect. So I think we must be optimistic about with our wills. I mean, the sheer scale of this crisis, the fact that we have a crisis as well of the climate and of our democratic system, I mean, the change is absolutely necessary. Of course, if you think about it, it's very hard to implement change. Capital is extremely mobile, and we're going to need to require it to make some sacrifices as well. Um, there's a big focus on short-termism as well. But if we unite as progressives, if we keep focused and we keep principle, then I believe that we can marshal together the policy instrument and the energy to push through meaningful change and enact shared prosperity. 